Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about books and old things and old people put on by people who are not old. It's about old people? It's uh, about, yeah, I mean... Ancient people. To us, they're not right? elderly. I mean, well, I mean... Some of them. If you can... Yeah, they're like 2,000 years old. That's pretty old, right? That's how age works, right? This guy's not. Wait. Although, oh, actually today we are yeah, talking about someone who is... Well... But kind of. You said we're talking about Satan, so that's like sure. an old fellow. He's yeah, so. super that's old. True. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what we talk about here. My name is Thomas Magby. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. Me. And Mr. Graham Donaldson. Me. And me. Me. <laughs> me, me. Dun, 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 <laughs> And we're here to announce the Classical Stuff uh, musical review coming to towns near you. No, there's no Starring way. Starring the Classical Stuff dancers. <laughs> For the YouTube people, can we start dancing right now? But actually, throughout this entire video, um, I'll just be dancing in the background. Uh, podcasters, awesome. you should go to YouTube to see yeah. if that's actually true. All right, uh, I already spoiled it, but today uh, Graham is leading the episode, and he is, in fact, we're looking. You know, twenty twenty has been a really hard year. <laughs> looking for kind of an uplifting topic, and um, I think you said Satan is what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Satan. Yeah, great. Okay. So, um, so we're yeah, we're going to pick up and talk about uh, the next sort of section of Rene Girard's book, "I See Satan Fall Like Lightning." So we'll do like a brief 30 second recap of what we did last time. So it's, wait, wait, it's I see as in like I view, I, not, I view. not icy Satan. I see, I see Satan. Like an old yeah. chilly yeah. Satan yeah. falling like lightning. That's why he went to hell. It's too, yeah. too, it's hot, too, too cold, cold up there. No, sure. I see Satan fall like lightning. But I feel like before we get started, we got to do a little shout out. Oh, to Hillsdale College? Yeah. yeah. So this is our shout out to you, admissions office at Hillsdale College. You are apparently our biggest fans. I hope you're going crazy at the office right now with this shout out. Or you're actually probably all working from home. Oh, so true. But hopefully you're cheering in your individual home. That's right. right? So if yeah, you're exactly. working from home, you're, you're my homies. My homies at home. Yeah. They visited the campus last week and they wanted to say hi to us. And unfortunately, That's right. Graham and AJ were uh, teaching classes. So, you know, they were stuck with... Because we're too important. Yeah, you're <laughs> very important people. Anyway, yes. um, yeah. Hello, Hillsdale. Hey, Hillsdale. Hillsdale. Yes. Meeting fans. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, so you, uh, admissions department at Hillsdale College, thanks for all your listens. We love you guys and accept our kids. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. your college. Yeah, yeah. Not just like, <laughs> or not in, in general. So- not just like, in, I in accept polite you. society. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so Rene Girard, uh, he was um, a philosopher. Uh, he wasn't a biblical scholar, he was a philosopher, and I even think like a sociologist or something at Stanford. Um, and he wrote a book on human psychology and uh, biblical interpretation and what Satan is. He's famous for um, highlighting why societies have scapegoats and what sort of role the scapegoat plays in bringing peace to society, and that's sort of what we're going to get to today. Wow. And um, um, and he... And, and so the, the concept that we talked about last time was this idea that human beings locate their desires in um, human beings locate their desires in what other people have. So that that um, yeah, th- there's this rivalry that comes up um, in, in human society, and it usually comes just from us like copying each other or we have this feeling in our hearts like we should i should want something well what's my what's my life for what's my purpose and you begin to um, fill in those blanks by what other people are doing by whether what other people have when everybody is doing something and you're not doing something um, it is very rare for the person to, to say like i'm right and everybody else is wrong although those people do exist um, it's more common for someone to be like what's wrong with me that i don't want x um and so um, I'm try- I was trying to think of like an example of how these, so these rivalries eventually escalate into a very important concept for Rene Girard called scandals. And, um, uh, and he comes to this, this word because when Jesus says, uh, in, I think it's the gospel of Luke and he says, blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. Hmm. And it's sort of like this weird concept, like what's Jesus mean when he says that, uh, people are blessed if they're not scandalized by Jesus. What actually is a scandal? So let's start there. What's this like? If you hear the word scandal, what do you think of? It's like someone who does a bad thing. Um, There's, it's a bad thing, but yeah. it's not just like it's, it's not. A, like, it's public disgrace. Yes. So it's public. And it's known. Yeah. It's it's a. But it's also like a very uh, like a public public misstep, right? Yes. Something that is. So if I'm scandalized by Jesus, I think that he is outside of society, not appropriate. Something something is wrong that makes him not fit. 
Does a scandal, so there's all, it can't just be an individual person. It has to be an individual person acting either in opposition to something else, like a set norm or. Yeah. I mean, the example that comes to mind is if someone cheats on someone else and, yes. it, and then it becomes publicly known. So it, it's something that happened between two people, but the knowledge about it is public. I don't know if it's necessarily just between two people. Not there can be scandals where somebody does something terrible and it sure. comes out and they are the only ones responsible and the sure. only ones involved. Yeah, so the Someone way... Someone could lie to large groups of people. It could be... Yes. Yeah, yeah. That could be a scandal. Yeah, sure. So Rene Girard has this idea that when human societies begin to go sour, they begin by having individual scandals between parties and then... the Sort of individual rivalries between parties and those rivalries sort of ratchet themselves up to the point where they become scandals. And then scandals begin to be in rivalry to one another. So is this scandalous thing that's happening more or less scandalous than this scandalous thing happening? And then you get these compounding scandalous things and everything sort of ratchets up to one great um, point where the entire community is what he, what he, he quotes Hobbes when he says the war of all against all. Mm. And so human societies in their mimetic rivalries have this um, mechanism that moves towards like open conflict of everybody against everybody. And so I was trying to think of like an example of how this works. Uh, and there's a couple of other elements in there that are important. So the only thing that I could think of is like two best friends who fell in love with the same girl or are wanting to date the same girl and in a high school. Mm-hmm. And let's say that at the beginning, it's kind of this friendly rivalry. They say, hey, you know, I like Tiffany and you like Tiffany. So what we're going to do is like, equal playing field, you'll ask her out, I'll ask her out, and we'll see which which one she wants. And then one guy does one little dirty trick where he like publicly embarrasses his friend, so mm. Tiffany thinks he's bad. And then his buddy does something else, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, right? Like, we know how that goes. That sure. it, it ratchets itself up until you get to... Um, Conflict. Uh, until uh, you get, uh, you uh, cross uh, some yeah. line. Right. And then... Uh, and I think that that's, that is what he means by scandal, right. is that you've got this rivalry that's ratcheted itself up to the point of um, like healthy societies not existing. Everybody has gotten sucked into this thing. And you've, you're, you know, what team are you on? So let's call them like Davey and Bucko. I don't know. I can't <laughs> oh, think of names. <laughs> <laughs> Can't call him uh, Jacob and Edward. <laughs> Fine, good. Yeah, you're right. Good. No, I yeah, mean this is you. the thing. So and then you then you then you start to ask yourself the question: like, Jacob, whose yeah, team are you on? Yeah, right? Oh, Who has acted more or less team scandalous? Edward. And the the objective rational person would look at this and say, "You're all idiots." Mm-hmm. But when you're in it, um, you get sort of sucked into the thing, and you become on one team or mm-hmm. another team, and. So like AJ might be team Jacob, mm-hmm. I might be team Edward in this conflict. Something the, like well, that. Well, the, the logical person would say he's a werewolf uh-huh. who is totally oh jacked word. and cannot keep his shirt on oh, did we talk because about it werewolves? gets too hot. Jacob werewolves? and Edward. Did, did you not make the connection? No, I made the connection. I okay. thought we were going to play the bit out further. Sorry. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, yes. obviously the werewolf. Good, obviously. Good, wonderful. Great. Good. I once read an article that Twilight oh. was a Mormon allegory. Have you ever heard this? Yeah, it's written by a Mormon. It's written by a Mormon. I don't know what, if it's allegory. allegory. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's about known enough about Mormons to be okay. able to say. Anyway. That'll be AJ's um, next episode. So, yeah, if the, if the boys are in competition for the girl... It's, so Rene Girard says uh, eventually a couple of things happen. One, it begins to suck people into the scandal. What what sucks people into the scandal? The rivalry. Okay. Um, and sort of this competition back and forth. So what could sort of start as a healthy competition eventually, um, um, it competes basically, yeah, you have these scandals, that es- these rivalries that escalate into scandals. And then uh, a couple of things happen. Um the object of desire eventually ends up being detested by the ones who are um, in rivalry for one another. Mm-hmm. At some point, there's a moment where they say, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Who did this to us? We were bewitched by the beauty of Tiffany or whatever, mm-hmm. if we're you know, making up characters. And you eventually get this point where the object of desire becomes the object of contempt, where maybe this object wow. of desire was placed here to destroy us. Um, in sort of almost like a primitivistic way of, of thinking about it. Is Gerard's argument that this always happens or? Are there... Not always happens, okay. but when it does happen, it, um, 
it sort of railroads, gets real powerful, and, and can become quite destructive. Okay. Um, he's eventually going to say that what this mechanism is, is um, the sort of the principle of Satan. That, yeah, maybe let, let's sort of maybe uh, uh, talk about that section because that's helpful. When you really break it down, um, when he's talking about mimetic rivalry or when he's talking about like desire, the, the way that I think it's helpful to think about it is um, we human beings have willpower. We want things. Mm-hmm. And Gerard is saying that in the universe, there's really only two schools of thought that you can align your will with. Um, and uh, what, basically God and the devil. Oh. Um, and what he means by God and the devil is that the school of thought of, of God is that you, um, your will should be to limit your desires and to desire what God desires. So if you're going to mimic somebody, and human beings are mimicking creatures, if you're going to mimic the willpower of something, you should mimic the will of God. And this is what Jesus does when he's on earth. Um, so this is kind of what Paul's getting at when he says, if you can't copy Jesus, copy me because I'm copying Jesus. Right. So that there's that principle. And then the other principle is what Satan says. And his principle is um, um, abandon yourself to your inclinations. Um, and uh, let me see if I can read a little quote where he says this, what Satan Satan's kind of principle is. Um, well, we, Gerard started this by saying... Um, well, he was looking at the uh, the Ten Commandments, mm. and the one commandment was don't covet your neighbor's mm-hmm. house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's stuff. Basically, don't covet things. Right. And that commandment is, like, put a cap on wanting what your neighbor has. Your desire, if left unchecked, is going to be such a destructive fire that God is commanding you not to desire. That right. That was Gerard's point. And the um, can I ask then for your example? For is the problem that um, um, Edward and what's the dumb werewolf called? Jacob. Yeah, that Edward and Jacob both want Tiffany or Bella. Is that the is the problem that they both want the same person? The problem is is that at some point, either the ego takes over and the object becomes secondary to the rivalry. Got it. It's more they want to win over the other person yeah. more so than actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, so the real the love so of someone. The, yeah. the, so uh, if two boys like one girl, uh, the gentlemanly way, the honorable way to do it is to actually say, to have present your case oh. to her and let her pick, and then the, the, and then have a have a good uh, you know a fair winner and a fair loser, and we can still be friends after it. And because I know of no better way to woo women than presenting a case, <laughs> yeah. put a PowerPoint slide together, and then yeah, exactly. Is this not how romance? Works? I am financially <laughs> solvent. I you own think my Tiffany own home. would? Well, I drive a Volvo. It's not flashy, <laughs> but it Tiffany, is reliable. If exactly. Tiffany is thinking about the future, <laughs> Tiffany would take these things into consideration. This is not nothing. Sure. Financial security is an important part of any relationship. I feel like if one guy gives the presentation, another guy rides up and says, "Hey." Can I go get some food on my motorcycle? She'll yeah. be like, yes, please. Yeah, I'm so tired of the power oh board. Conversation. Yeah. Well, Tiffany is losing out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway. but the, the, the how, way am, that... how am I the only one not married in this, <laughs> in this group? Um, the we way get, that... We get better PowerPoint presentations. Yeah, you yeah. got to get better PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the way it should work is when the loser loses the girl, he should, you know... Move um, on. Move on and be able to shake hands and say, like, that's just, you right. know, the way it is. Um, but at some point, if they're going to go into a rivalry... Uh, the object of desire sort of fades into the background, or as Gerard points out, eventually even becomes an object of hatred or not, or, or blames the object for the destruction that has now happened in the community. Mm-hmm. AJ, we used to be best friends until she got in the middle of us, right? Yeah, I can't believe she did this to us. Mm-hmm. She didn't do anything to us. She's existed. Right. Um, but it's that kind of, um, unless she was actively like playing us off each other. She spends an hour doing her hair. In the <laughs> she does it for a reason. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, the two principles, uh, uh, you you can try to mimic God or you can try to mimic Satan. And what and this is sort of what Gerard says, um, how Satan presents himself. Um, like Jesus, Satan seeks to have others imitate him, but not in the same fashion, not for the same reasons. He wants, first of all, to seduce. Satan as seducer is the only one of his roles that the modern world condescends to remember a bit. 
primarily to joke about. Hmm. Satan likewise presents himself as a model for our desires, and he is certainly easier to imitate than Christ, for he counsels us to abandon ourselves to our inclinations in defiance of morality and its prohibitions. If we listen to Satan, who may sound like a very progressive and likable educator, we may feel initially that we are liberated, but this impression does not last because Satan deprives us of everything that protects us from rivalistic imitation. Rather than warning us of the trap that awaits us, Satan makes us fall into it. He applauds the idea that prohibitions are of no use and that transgressing them contains no danger. Wow. Um, so, um, so then for our example, would, mm-hmm. is Gerard saying that like God is on one side, Satan's on another, or is Satan almost like the third option of the rivalry? Like, I, I'm just, is he trying to say that there are right sides and wrong sides in these conflicts over an object of desire or is the rivalry itself where Satan is present? I think it's the rivalry is where Satan is present. Okay. Um, yeah. And maybe our example of the two guys want both desiring the girl is a bad one. I think it's, it's when the, when it goes from, Tiffany is no longer considered and Tiffany is no longer cared about. And it just becomes, I need to beat this guy to this thing. Um, And you eventually locate your behavior, your action, and your very being based on the behavior and actions of your rival. Mm -hmm. And he's doing the same thing to you. Right. Um, It becomes a race to the bottom. And so it becomes, yes. And so it becomes a sort of race to the bottom. And that is um, the... The, the, that is the trap that Satan doesn't tell you you're going to fall into, and that is the trap that do not covet your neighbor's stuff is trying to prohibit you from falling into. Okay. Um, so Satan says, give in to everything. You have desires and you should go for them. And little do you know that that's going to put you in opposition to everybody. And <laughs> This is what? reminding me of, are you guys aware of the OTO? No. Do you know what the OTO is? Mm-hmm. You referenced this last time. It's like the cult of Satan or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they call it the Church of Satan. It's not really, but they. it's the Ordo Templi Orientis. And they're one thing. It's Aleister Crowley. You ever heard of him? Aleister Crowley? No. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the philosopher behind, behind the thing. And do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. And there's another podcast out there I occasionally listen to. Uh, they, are, they are skeptics of pretty much everything. Um, and it's <laughs> Ono, Ross, and Carey. And what they do is they get into... Things like this, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere there's a claim of the supernatural or, or pseudoscience, and they, they get as far in as they can. They, they experience it. It's kind of like gonzo journalism for sure. the supernatural, weird, supernatural and occult. And so they went to this thing, and they pointed out that do what thou wilt as the whole of the law is fine until two people in the organization Disagree. will opposing things. Yes. Like, my will is to leave my Gatorade here and have it when I come back. Right. Someone else's will is to drink my Gatorade, and that's that's when we automatically get into this opposition. And they're yeah. like, it'll go fine if everyone just do what they wanted. Well, no, it's, it's a really short-sighted philosophy. It's just making sure. me giggle that you're pointing out the exact yes, problem with point, the OTO. And this is the sure. exact problem with it because... And it's and literally called, like, often they call it the Church of Satan, which is just the funniest thing. And then the next step is like, okay, when the person has done what he's wanted and drank your Gatorade, uh-huh. you, have, you now have created a rivalry. Yes. And that person is going to be in rival, you know, and then you've, you've created this sort of opposition with one another that eventually... Which has to escalate to violence, which, right? Isn't that the only way it to... Either, it either has to escalate, yes, it either has to escalate to violence or someone's the bigger man and just sort of brushes it off. Yep. But right. um, Gerard's point is that that, that um, um, it usually escalates into violence. Right. Um, if it doesn't, um, it eventually will. Like, you, that person is now a rival in your mind in the smallest way, and maybe the Gatorade doesn't rush into violence, but the next time they do something is well, another not, little tick on... I'm not going to be leaving my Gatorade around anymore because of that guy. Yeah, sure. yeah. And then and then the next time... And then, you know what? I'm going to leave my Gatorade, but I'm going to hork in it. Um, and then he finds out that you horked in the Gatorade when he drank it, and, you know, and then it off and then off we go. Right. Um, so, um, yes, so then... These things escalate into what these are called scandals. And then eventually, scandals are in competition with one another. That conflict is the scandal. So in the Gatorade, it's whether you put it on the 
desk or not is the scandal? Well, the scandal is, yes, I guess the scandal is as soon as the person has taken that sort of next step into escalating it. Uh-huh. And the scandal is when it escalates to so, to such a point that it bleeds out into the rest of the community and everyone's like, oh my goodness, you, this has the, gone yeah, nuts. All the OTO now knows that like AJ and... Craig mm-hmm. are at ri- a rivalries and yeah. we're all the do what thou wilt is aimed at the other person. Sure. And then someone's like, well, let me get, here's my big long Facebook post about how <laughs> Greg is fine. Yeah. And here's my big long Facebook post about how AJ is justified. And then somebody else is like, I'm staying out of it. Mm-hmm. I don't want part of this. And it's like, well, by staying out of it, you're already picking a side. And, and you don't it, care about the community. You don't care about the community. So, right. this, this, so there's the interesting point. When that person comes out and says, well, I'm staying out of it, and the other person says, you don't care about the community, you've now created another Another rivalry. Those who don't care about the scandal and those who do care about the scandal. And now you've got a second rivalry, and that's going to ratchet up. Um, So to the point where these little things build up, and then eventually what you get is what's called the war of all against all. So you have the scandal that escalates to the point where everybody is against everybody. and something's got to give. Okay, now this is um, uh, this is where it gets kind of really interesting. Um, that so Jesus in the Bible, Satan's got a couple of names. So how does Satan like refer to? Was well, this is a Bible quiz? What are Satan? Like some of the like of yeah, some of the names or some of the like titles he gets. Uh, the accuser. So he gets the accuser. Uh, Prince of Lies, I think. Prince of Lies. Uh, Prince of the Power of the Air. Yeah, prin- yeah. Prince. Yeah, this is the one. Prince of the Power of the Air or the Prince of this World. Right. And so René Girard take, latches onto that concept, and he's like, "Why is Satan called the prince of this world? Why did like a prince indicating that he's got authority over this world? And um, and so why does he have this name? So Girard says that at some point it gets real uh, interesting that if this is true, um, this that um, these mimetic rivalries." turn into, wow, okay, we're doing great on time. These mimetic rivalries turn into scandals, and then eventually these scandals start playing off each other that the scandals become their own mimetic rivalries. And you get to the point where everybody is all riled up and you have these scandals competing for public attention. Um, If left unchecked, that will... That will destroy the community. People will just start straight up killing each other. Or the, the community will rip apart to the point where, like, fine, we'll have OTO and the spinoff OTO mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Or we'll have, you know, the Methodists and the United Methodists. Right. <laughs> you will have some sort of rift, but then there's going to be scandals in those things. So um, if Satan's principle is left, to, if you, that program is left to play itself out, why haven't, why hasn't humanity destroyed itself? How do we still have a culture and a community and civilization? Mutual need. Interesting. I was um, going to say law. I was, or Because at some point, so if there's a disagreement, the question is who is right. So someone has to say who is right. So yeah. we, we create an authority structure that says the person at the top gets to say which side But is even right. then, like, um, that, that, will, that breaks itself down. So if the authority structure itself becomes enmeshed in scandal, sure. then people are going to be like, well, screw you. And then you have a civil war or whatever. He eventually says sure. what happens is... Um, there's this mechanism in this destructive, rivalistic, uh, mimetic rivalry that ratchets up to scandal. And he says, it eventually coalesces onto one universally hated subject. And that subject, all of the wrath of the community gets poured out on that subject, and that subject needs to be destroyed. And when that subject is destroyed, you have a sort of a, a, a calm or you have a release. You've got this great release of the rage and this sort of contagion of rival emotion poured out on the subject. And when that subject is killed and destroyed, then it's almost expunged like a disease. Um, and interestingly enough, when one side, so when the, when the great act of violence comes, and this is where we get the terms, this is where scapegoats come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the sins of the community or all of the rivals of the community get put onto this one object. So how do the bros um, become friends again without like um, it tearing everything apart and escalating to, to bloodshed? Well, they eventually either, they have to, both of them, 
uh, reject the girl. Reject right. the girl. Yeah, exactly. Now, that's, that's a, a small and unviolent way that this plays itself out, and we have sort of, you know, uh, like buddy movies built around that very, um, uh, what's it called, that very sort of plot point. Mm-hmm. But when it gets into a violent mob, you get all, uh, a thing where you can have an innocent um, subject where all the rage gets put upon, and when that subject is killed, um, then both sides start imitating each other in being calm again. So um, there's this great release that comes in the violence, and ha, we got it. Great, we got rid of the problem. Great job, you guys. We did it. Wow. And then the guy over there that doesn't feel like we did it sees that everybody else feels like they did it, and he's like, oh, I should probably feel better about this too. And then you've almost got this like, quote-unquote, positive contagion. If you had a negative contagion of everybody getting ratcheted up to violence, after the violence, you get almost this, like, positive contagion of, we did it, you guys, we defeated the bad guy, we defeated the enemy, Mm -hmm. which was Tiffany or whatever. Or this is when people talk about, like, the 1950s being this, like, awesome time of unity. This would say it's because we beat the Nazis. Yeah. And, like, that was our unifying moment. We could all talk to each other as, you know, common Americans. And um, what's wrong with our, what's wrong with the city? Well, there's a witch. Mm. We got to get rid of her. Sure. And as soon as we, as soon as we burn that witch, we can go um, back to, that we can go back to the way things were. Sure. Um, and so he says that, um, that this is still Satan at work, uh-huh. that this is sort of Satan's um, pressure release valve, is that the way that Satan keeps his power, so the only thing Satan knows how to do, the only... Um, action that Satan does is to try to re- is, is to try to get you from following God's law and to live for your own desire. But Satan's problem is that as soon as communities start to live for their own desires, it is going to destroy them. So what Satan does needs to do is then as as soon as everybody's desire is to kill everybody else because everyone's sort of gotten into this state of madness, he then funnels all of that rage and hatred onto one single um, victim. And then when that victim is killed, there is a reset. And then the desires can go back to its base state, and then the cycle can start all over again. And so this is the the idea of the scapegoat. Um, And um, so... um, yeah, the, the sudden harmony that comes out of the discord is still a mimicking. So when the crowd mm. begins to see that others in the crowd have been satiated with the death of the innocent, they are satiated. Mm. And then the desire kind of gets, you know, pushed down. So, um, and this is, I think, I, I, AJ, just because we're, we're going to be studying this book in Senior English Next, uh, Brave New World, I think Huxley's getting at this too with a lot of the... Um, uh, the sort of religious elements that he has woven into the Brave New World Society, that human beings can't live um, getting all of their needs fulfilled without some kind of pressure release, and that's why they have the orgy-porgy uh, thing going on there. So I know for those of you who really like Huxley's Brave New World, that element is at play in there. But anyway, so... Um, do, you, do you buy this? Do you uh, say more about what you think about all of this? I buy it. I buy it in the fact that, like, you see it happening in, um, you see it happening in, in, in society. He actually goes, when he begins to talk about um, uh, this concept of scapegoats, he goes and he finds a, um, a story of, well, let me, let me just sort of read this story. He, um, he finds this book um, by... Um, Philostratus, Philostratus, a Greek writer who is in the second century, second century? Um, anyway, who's after Christ, and he's this sort of guru. And so they, uh, this guy named uh, Apollonius of uh, Tyana. So Apollonius of Tyana is this sort of guru, spiritualist, um, miracle man. And Ephesus has this problem. Ephesus has a plague. And so here's, I wanna, I'm going to read this little story to you. So this is coming from... Um, this book, uh, The Life of Apollonius of Tyana. Um, so the Ephesians could not get rid of an epidemic. They have, mu- they have all these remedies and nothing works, and they go to Apollonius who says this. Take courage, for I will today put a stop to the course of the disease. And with these words, he led the population entire to the theater where the image of the averting God had been set up. Um, 
And there he saw what seemed an old mendicant artfully blinking his eyes as if blind. And he carried a wallet and a crust of bread in it. So it was a little poor guy just like living in the temple. And he was clad in rags and was very squalid of countenance. Apollonius therefore arranged the Ephesians around him and said, pick up as many stones as you can and hurl them at this enemy of the gods. Now the Ephesians wondered what he meant and were shocked at the idea of murdering a stranger so manifestly miserable, for he was begging and praying them to take mercy upon him. Nevertheless, Apollonius insisted and egged on the Ephesians to launch themselves on him and not let him go. And as soon as some of them began to take shots and hit him with their stones, the beggar, who had seemed to blink and be blind, gave them all a sudden glance and showed that his eyes were full of fire. Then the Ephesians recognized that he was a demon, and they stoned him so thoroughly that their stones were heaped into a great cairn around him. After a little pause, Apollonius bade them remove the stones and acquaint themselves with the wild animal which they had slain. When therefore they had exposed the object which they had thought they had thrown their missiles at, they found that he had disappeared, and instead of him there was a hound who resembled in form and look a Molosian dog, but was in size the equal of the largest lion. There he lay before their eyes, pounded to a pulp by their stones, and vomiting foam as mad dogs do. Accordingly, the statue of the averting god named Hercules had been set up over the spot where the ghost was slain. So, that's a you know pretty rough miracle. Um... Does Gerard question it to and say so, essentially this was actually just a poor beggar man that yeah so Gerard is saying that in that miracle um, that he, when uh, this happens a lot that in the ancient world when they talk about a plague in a city sometimes it's bacterial but other times it's a spiritual plague that when something's wrong in Ephesus it's just that like there's just something in the air there's just something wrong in the community people don't trust each other. People don't like each other. Everybody thinks everyone's out to screw them. Um, and the gods are not blessing the community with prosperity. Uh, um, there's just, there's no more harmony. And that that kind of thing was also called a plague mm. in a community, that the gods were just frowning and, and all of our, our normal human actions just aren't working themselves out. That um, when Tiffany chose AJ, um, uh, you know, uh, Craig just couldn't, just wouldn't let it go, and and there's just nastiness in the air, and that's that's also a plague. And so Gerard is saying that Apollonius is recognizing that this is what is wrong with the Ephesians, and by finding an outsider, by finding somebody that everyone could that he thinks everyone could agree to dislike, mm. um, uh, and killing that outsider, that all of those angry negative passions that that sort of um, that toxicity of relationship that gets built up gets expunged, mm-hmm. and now everybody can kind of get back to to regular life, and the and and the plague is gone, and then so the the fact that there's a dog, you know, uh, a demon dog underneath it is just um, uh, that's maybe the uh, the part of the story that's that's kind of like the apocryphal. It's tacked on to make you feel better. That's tacked on to make you feel better about it. What should make us feel better is that the Ephesians initially were like, I don't don't want to stone this guy. Um, But his point is that that this was a this was a thing that in the pagan world, in the ancient world, they understood, uh, or at least the sort of like self help community gurus understood um, uh, that it's sort of the same concept of like you needed like a communal bloodletting. Uh, or you needed to pour out the, the community needed to pour out all of their rages and frustrations on an object, and then everybody would sort of feel better. Now, ultimately, he's going to go on in the book, and we're not going to finish the book on the podcast. Uh, but ultimately, he's going to go on and talk about how God subverts Satan's scapegoating by giving a scapegoat that perfectly destroys the power of Satan's right. uh, 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 mimetic desire in Christ. So by having Christ be this ultimate scapegoat, um, Christ's, Christ's perfect sacrifice ends up destroying the power that Satan has of the world, which is to get everybody, uh, you know, all geeked out about their own passions to the point where they're willing to shed blood, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, and then shedding blood and everybody feeling okay again. But by bringing the scapegoat back to life and opening up a path for people to live without having to be stuck in this cycle of sin and desire, um, that actually the scapegoat ends up destroying Satan's tool tool right. for ruling the world. And so, and so that's Gerard's kind of like 
um, reading of these archetypes or reading of these stories. And uh, I think it's I think it's a great it's really fascinating and really interesting. Um, Does he speak to why there is still conflict like that now? So if that tool is broken, it people still get worked up. People still have scapegoats. Yeah, but now you have are you what we should be having is we should have the church who is um, showcasing how the way to live without being a slave to mimetic rivalry should go. Mm. And so in the New Testament, when it talks about people lived together and held their their um, their things as if they were one, or as you talking about X two, yeah, like the commonly, they, yeah. it's not just because like the leaders of the, the the writers of the Gospel of Acts wanted to like leave us little socialist policies in the Bible for, sure. but it's that this is this is sort of how the community ends up like a community that has abandoned the quest of following their own desires and is actually following the do not covet your neighbor stuff right. is going to be a community that doesn't get, um, you know, their shorts in a wad over these slights of, of desire or these, the, this, the, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. Your example earlier kind of got at denominations, which is a kind of splitting of that unity that kind of started things off. Mm-hmm. It's almost a reframing of the importance of there being one, in the Nicene Creed, it's the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, Catholic meaning universal, not, yeah. not Roman Catholic. And insofar as, you know, if those divisions are because the divisions are moving us, so there's two takes on it, right? The divisions are either moving us back Closer towards to purity, yeah. or those divisions are just mimetic rivalries that can't be worked themselves, that can't work themselves out. If they're the latter, well, that's sort of the more satanic principle. If they are the former, well, then it's almost like uh, a healthy expunging and you know the jury's out on you have to sort of look at it by a case-by-case basis to figure out which one is which mm-hmm. yeah now um uh when jesus so when peter um uh says to jesus hey um i want to be at your right hand when we take this thing down like let's go let's throw out the romans and jesus says get behind me satan um this is what gerard says why he calls him satan peter becomes the object of this rebuke when he reacts negatively to the first prediction of the passion. So yeah, when Peter says, you can't die, you got to throw out the Romans. Disappointed by what he takes to be the excessive resignation of Jesus, the disciple tries to breathe into him his own desire, his own worldly ambition. Peter invites Jesus, in short, to take Peter himself as the model of his desire. So Jesus, you should want what I want. Mm -hmm. If Jesus were to turn away from his father to follow Peter, he and Peter both would quickly fall into mimetic rivalry and the venture of the kingdom of God would melt away in insignificant quarrels. So when Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's rebuking him because what he's saying to Peter is, by asking me to want what you want as opposed to what my father wants, you are acting like, you are enacting the satanic principle in the world right now. Mm. That's, man, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. Because um, how else would you, you need a way to interpret that passage. Mm-hmm. What is what is common between Satan and what Peter's doing in that moment? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's just, it's, yeah. I feel like it's something I need to think more about. Now, um, and AJ, I'm going to need your help on this. So uh, we last cl- podcast, we talked about the great man theory and Dostoevsky. And I think you can take this Girard principle of the rivalries that ratchet themselves up to the point where each individual person hates everybody else as what the great what is going on in the epilogue in crime and punishment. So do you want to just give like a brief, we didn't talk about it last, excuse me, last podcast. Do you want to give a little brief overview of that, of Raskolnikov's dream? Oh gosh, it's been a little while since I've read it. Uh, do you know it better than me? Uh, did you teach it when you did it with your seniors? Mm-mm. Okay, I did. So I, I uh, because uh, we had a little extra time. No, so yeah, so at it. the end of Crime and Punishment, when Raskolnikov, who has, if, you, if you're confused, you can listen to last week's podcast. Mm-hmm. When Raskolnikov confesses and begins his path of, of um, confession and faith and uh, repentance, he goes to jail in Siberia, and he has this dream wherein he has a dream where, um, well, let me just actually read a little bit of it, because um, uh, it's a dream where his own terrible philosophy works itself out 
I was impressed. You like literally just open up books and flip, flip to the right page. Well, I teach them. Well, you don't, this like, is the 10th time. Or, do you mark them or anything? It's, yeah, I got a little star by oh, it. This, this makes me feel better. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were just like straight up opening the book to the right page. No, no. Um, so Raskolnikov, uh, so um, he dreamt. I'm just going to read a little passage from this. I may read the whole thing because it's so good. But um, he dreamt in his illness that the whole world was condemned to fall victim to a terrible unknown pestilence. So again, that like language of a contagion. Right. Um, which was moving on Europe out of the depths of Asia. All were destined to perish, except a chosen few, a very few. There had appeared a new strain of trichinae, microscopic creatures, parasitic in men's bodies. But these creatures were endowed with intelligence and will. People who were infected immediately became like men possessed and out of their minds. But never, never had any men thought themselves so wise and so unshakable in the truth as those who were attacked. Never had they considered their, uh, had they considered their judgments, their scientific deductions, or their moral convictions and creeds more infallible. Whole communities, whole cities and nations were infected and went mad. All were full of anxiety, and none could understand any other. Each thought he was the sole repository of truth and was tormented when he looked at the others, beat his breast, wrung his hands, and wept. They did not know how or whom to judge and could not ad- agree what was evil and what was good. They did not ho- know whom to condemn or whom to acquit. Men killed one another in senseless rage. They banded together against one another in great armies. But when the armies were already on the march, they began to fight among themselves. The ranks disinte- disintegrated. The soldiers fell on their neighbors. They thrust and cut. They killed and ate one another. In the towns... Uh, the toxins, uh, the toxins sounded all day long and call out all the people, but who in some of them and why nobody knew and everybody was filled with alarm. The most ordinary callings were abandoned because every man put forward his own ideas, his own improvements, and there was no agreement. The laborers forsook the land. And then it goes on and on and it talks about how people say, we got to get back to the way things were, but they can't agree on how the, what the way things were. And it yes, just sort of disintegrates right. into this, into this uh, sort of great unraveling. Um, does he open by, did he say that there are some people who were immune to this? Did, yeah, yeah. He, he says back? that there are some people that were immune to this disease and they were the ones who were going to survive this, the coming whatever. Ultimately, all the ones who are infected kill each other? I think he wakes up before the dream ends. Okay. Uh, but you sort of see how, when I read that passage, I think to myself, like, this is kind of what Gerard's getting at. Yes. That there's no other way of dealing with this. There's no cure to that disease, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, well, Gerard says the cure to the disease is death, in though, fall in, basically, the cure to the disease is in following Jesus. And what he means by that is, um, instead of opening yourself up to following your desires, that's going to eventually put you in violence you, um, um, quote, do the will of my father. Mm. Um, now what that exactly is, as far as Gerard is concerned, I don't, I don't really feel like I have a good handle on, um, uh, well, wanting what God wants. Yeah. Or, or not seeking conflict would be the uh, specific example here, right? Yeah. You, are you referencing something else by saying you don't know what Gerard would want? Um, I mean, it's just, um, he says that, Jesus showcases us the way that, uh, that someone should live who desires what God desires. And, that, that, and so when you see, basically, like, Gerard would agree with the what would Jesus do bracelets, right? Because he'd be like, that's, sure. that's, that's actually the principle you, you need to have right. is, is do what Jesus does because he, perf- he is someone that has control over his desires um, and follows the law of God. And if the law of God is set up to put guardrails on our desire so we do not fall into mimetic rivalry and ultimate destruction and death then do what jesus does sure do you think this has anything to say for right now are there any um yeah i don't know i aj you seem lost in thought do you uh do you think that's fair to say that dostoevsky's great man theory is related to- related to this sort of um it's like the satanic principle if you want to call it that well, sure. He wanted he wanted to be like other men. He thought he were 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 great. I am. 
Yeah, and that's kind of the the, the rivalry, right? Like, yeah. I want to be Napoleon, this sort of abstract person that I can oh, that and, I can just sort of lob and, my own desires onto. And he thinks all other men are louses. Yeah. And he's wondering if he's one of those two. Yeah. Right? Power over the whole ant heap. He's just, he has no high opinion of his fellow man. Yes. Um, what I'm wondering about is his reading of the Get Behind Me Satan passage mm. and his view of the Christ event as, the Christ event is a really, I don't know, clinical way of saying when, when Jesus died, mm-hmm. uh, thinking of that as, as a, a scapegoat. I, I see where this theory is going. To me, it feels like at the at the risk of doing the fallacy of argument from personal incredulity, like I just don't buy it. It, yeah. it seems like one of those things that's logically internally coherent, but unsatisfying as an explanation for all of human human events. And here's what I mean: so the the, expa- the explanation of Jesus's death as the ultimate scapegoat event is okay, but I, I see a disconnect between the analogy you gave. And Jesus, right? We're not all standing around looking at Jesus saying like, thank goodness we got rid of that screwball. He was really messing up the, the community. But the crowd was. The crowd was. Right. But we all look at that crowd and most of history has looked at that crowd and said, what a bunch of dinks those guys were. To us, he was a good man that was killed. And so if we're talking like, yes, Jesus was a scapegoat, mm-hmm. but Jesus was a scapegoat for the furies of God the Father, not the community at large. So I have trouble with that. And I also have a little bit of trouble with him explaining the get behind me Satan thing there too. Mm -hmm. I personally kind of doubt that Jesus was thinking all of that terminology. Maybe yes, he was, I think it kind of works out where it's the same. That's why I'm kind of lost in thought is Mm -hmm. Peter wanted a certain thing to happen. And the thing is, is I see like what Satan did to Jesus was tempted. Mm-hmm. Like we have the mm-hmm. temptation for mm-hmm. 40 days. Mm-hmm. And so if what he said was like, you shouldn't die, we should go overthrow Rome. I wonder if that wasn't like almost a direct temptation to Jesus. Jesus clearly did not want to want to die, right? If you can take this yep, cup we from the garden me. of Gethsemane. Yeah, we yep. have the garden of Gethsemane. And so if Peter's like, hey man, forget all that death nonsense and come with me and let's overthrow Rome. Jesus could have, right? And so there's a little bit of temptation there, and I'm wondering if... It's like if, the Grand Inquisitor all over again, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if it isn't just like this this fellow, uh, Gerard, kind of really shoehorning some events into a personal theory. And, and I get the I whole... I think that's a fair criticism. And I think the whole uh, like mimetic rivalry as the problem and the abandonment of passions is the Jesus way to go, but it's not just the abandonment of passion. And I think you were talking about this just now. It's the attunement of passion, mm-hmm. right? The ordering of your loves. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing is sometimes true ordered attuned passions can lead to conflict in the community that is good conflict. And that is how you test whether or not every rivalry is a good one. If someone is doing terrible things to the poor downtrodden and the widow, I should as a Christian try to somehow fix that problem, ideally through forgiveness and absolution for the offender. Mm -hmm. But but there, there are conflicts that might sometimes arise, and this is where when you get into the difficulty of, like, should Christians always be pacifists? Well, this is what right? we were even talking about with, with schisms, right? right? Sometimes that's a conflict that should arise because right. there's a doctrine that has been... Precisely. Yeah. And, so, mm-hmm. and so, like, conflicts... Yeah, concepts are, conflicts aren't ipso facto satanic. I think no, that's his point. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think so. And, and my other point is that, like, when you asked how do communities survive, well one of the most accepted ones is mutual need. It's mm-hmm. not just like, woo, we got a scapegoat this time. It's like, we have to stay together. Maybe I should have, have rephrased the it. question of how do communities survive when those rivalries get to a fever pitch? That that's Maybe that's the point. I think, I mean, yeah, scapegoat, maybe. Other times life just moves on. People forget about it. Like, I can't spend all day posting on Facebook. And at some point I have to go to my job and figure out something else. Do I need a scapegoat to make that happen? No, sometimes it just fades. But doesn't the anger and the hatred and the toxic the toxic relationships of a community build up to a fever pitch where something's got to give? I mean, that clearly has to be... Sometimes what gives is just people get tired of it. Yeah, I don't know. I think... I, I just don't see that it always where? Give me an example. Give me an example where... Where it was teetering on a knife edge of destruction, everyone was like, "You know what?" I think it's almost personal let's, conflict. Is let's, you don't you don't have deep conversations every time you have a problem with someone. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just forget. Just and for example, all right, this is a. But what about a, when it bleeds over into the crowd? That's that's I think what Gerard's getting. Okay, so here right? here it is. Okay. Uh, here here's one example. Um, way back in the ancient days of Veritas, there were a whole lot of people up in arms about 
um, what appeared to be sort of nepotism, right? There's a lot of shooknecks that work at this school. Fair. And I am related to the shooknecks, and so is my sister. And so, like, that's that's all these things. And there were there were some other teachers that had left, and so there was this divide between the administration and the the common folk, right? And it got to kind of a fever pitch where people were demanding certain people to step down and there were all these emails sent and eventually a meeting was held that was just like, hey, let's chat it out. Yeah. And they chatted and it ended. Like, it was over. They right. they addressed some concerns. We had a talk. Was there a scapegoat? No. We didn't pick, we didn't like take Jeff Fowler and boot him and say, thank heavens we got rid of that scapegoat. Sometimes we can talk yeah. things out. Sometimes we just forget. Like, uh, that that conflict... It's so like a come-to-Jesus moment. Yeah, a come-to-Jesus moment, sure. Do you think that makes his point? I think, I mean, that's, I think, why we call it a come-to-Jesus moment. Um, but that's that's my point, is, like, his theory is fine, but it feels unsatisfying to me as ex- an explanation for human experience. Yeah. He's, he's, he's answering the question of what happens if the two parties aren't reasonable and things continue to escalate. So neither party's willing to be the bigger person, neither one's willing to listen to the other side. What ultimately happens at the end of that? So what happens if people are only sinful, but um, people, sure. people are well, he's, sinful? Well, he's giving an answer to, when you look at primitive religions or when you look at pagan the, the pagan world and you see that things are centered around sacrifice where um, an animal or you know heaven help us a person a baby some kind of thing is determined to be the great evil that needs to be expunged and then there's health to the community that's a mechanism that exists in societies and so he's trying to give an example to what is happening with those, like that sort of anthropological phenomena, what's going on there that the blood of an innocent or the blood of an outside thing ends up bringing health to the community. And he's sort of saying, and this is his, um, his sort of, uh, his take on that. Is, is this also his explanation of like the sacrificial system? Or does I he, does think he even go so. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I oh, mean, but then, then I take huge beef with that because part of the reason for the sacrificial system is to point forward to Jesus Christ. I'm talking about like Greeks. I'm, I wasn't. Oh, like that, the Greek but, sacrificial system. Yeah. Sure. Cause yeah, it's not just Hebrews that had that. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. even just to, if we're in our nitpicking point, the, the scapegoat for the sacrifice is the goat that gets away. It's not the goat that's killed. Yeah. We're yeah. Looking straight up at Leviticus. So Jesus isn't the scapegoat. It's Barabbas. Who's the scapegoat. He's the one who's released. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus is the one who's anyway, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and I don't, again, he's viewing these things more allegorically than he is like, what is the actual application of Leviticus to the Correct. Christ event? Yes. So. He's reading this almost in like a, He's using the allegorically current. or you even yeah. call this is almost like archetypally. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of saying like there is um, the Jesus way and there is the devil way. Yes. And these are the two. And, you know, uh, the healthy community needs to do what AJ just described, which is to sit down and talk it out and um, basically um, put a cap on the desires that are running away from the community. Right. And that's the and that's the healthy way. And so. I mean, I think a someone who doesn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God could re- would read "I see Satan fall like lightning" and say, "Like, oh, that's a really interesting take on human psychology yep, using exactly. the Bible as using the story tool, of the Bible to yeah. to interpret to yeah speak into how human beings behave." Right. And so um, it just makes me think of which is probably why he's not saying Rene Girard. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> it may, it just makes like the application of this theory. I get it that in certain and, and I agree that in certain instances this theory makes a lot of sense and but it reminds me of a quote from gk chesterton's father brown mysteries mm-hmm. that a man warmly concerned with any large uh with any large theories has always a relish for applying them to any triviality right <laughs> mm-hmm. right take any large theory like this and it's his favorite thing to apply it anywhere but i don't know that that's what's happening it's just what yeah. it reminds me of thomas the question you said do you have any sort of application for this today not in the present moment, although I'm sure we could freak ourselves out um, if we did this, but that we should never... Uh, yeah, that that principle that happens when why does the witch, who is clearly innocent to the eyes of the historian looking back on her, it was like blazingly obvious that this poor child was not a witch. Why mm-hmm. do seemingly rational people end up um, straight out murdering her um, in this kangaroo court right. um, for the health of the community. 
And we would be arrogant if we think that we were immune to those That's kinds right. of yes. things today. And so, and, and so the, the great outsider is always going to be, uh, yeah, so the, the, yeah, the, that, that um, when a community gets into a place of, of sort of, of toxic rivalries back and forth, um, uh, it should not surprise anybody when the threat of violence of all against all becomes targeted towards uh, one. One person, one group. Yeah. Right. It's like The Purge. <laughs> right? That movie. I, I brought that up last time we talked about this. Although I think in The Purge, that's more just like a go out and kill whoever you want and get out of your system. No the real, the, the Rene Girardian Purge movie would be that everybody votes on the one person, guy. To, one guy to die. Or there's that movie, that old short story, The Lottery. Do you guys yeah. know this short story? I know, I know the I short don't. story. Where everybody gets together and like, oh, today's the day of the lottery. And yeah. oh, who's going to be, who's going to win the lottery? And the person who wins the lottery, the community stones them to death. Wow. And then the community goes back to being like healthy again. So if I think, if I'm remembering that's the story correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. So it's that kind of thing, right? That, um, that communities ritualistically, ha- yeah, ritualistically enact unjust violence for that sort of psychic spiritual health of the community. And as far as Girard is concerned, the death of Christ frees us from having to do that as a community, that there is a way to come together and, um, and to sort of um, reorient our desires as opposed to having to have the sort of contagious wrath fall on the milky white head of an innocent or whatever. No, uh, I'm with you. I agree with a lot of that. But the example you brought up with of the clearly in which who is clearly innocent, which according to the historian, well, that only functions if the historian is not being himself arrogant and she was truly innocent. It's easier for us to look back. She actually was a witch. Because, she was like, well, that's the thing. Like, I'm going to re- reveal with... a little bit of my mysticism here. But if I am a Christian, I believe in demonic forces. Sure. And if there are demonic forces, then witches may exist. And a lot of people I've talked to have had run-ins with things like that. And at the very least, there are these suspicions in, in communities not American. And so, like... Things like that. If there really is someone trying to work magic on so the like people the crucible, around them in the community, two thumbs up. And uh, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's easy like for us story, to though. look back like, and take yeah. modern sensibilities and foist them on mm-hmm. people who, who, like, you are assuming that you are smarter than the entire Puritan community. Fair. That did that, yeah, and that true. seems hubristic to me. I haven't seen. Do you ever watch? Did you watch the movie The Witch? Yes. Um, I did. Is there? I mean, I, I haven't watched it, but I've read enough about it to know the whole plot of it. I think it would just freak the crap out of me if I watched it. Eh, but it's, it's kind of goofy in spots. But it oh. seems like it's kind of got this, like the satanic element is at play in that movie too, right? Like the uh, oh, taking on the, 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 the father is too proud and he, he develops this, this rivalistic animosity with the community and he eventually has to like go off by himself into the woods. And it's that, it's that sort of pride and arrogance of not being told how to live that is the seed of his family's destruction, right? Uh, it's also that the goat is literally Satan. Well, yeah. That is also a seed of destruction, mm-hmm. I think. Spoiler. Not just the dad. Yeah. Anyway, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak too much like about I, it. I, I, yeah. I would be like, yeah, the dad was partially at fault, but also Satan goat. The goat. Yeah. It, it seems to be a large force yeah. at work. Anyway, so that's Rene Girard. Uh, I don't think we're going to do a third parter, even though we're only like... Th- what? How many chapters are in the book? Or um, how much of the book have we covered? We've probably not even, we've probably covered a third of it. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and the, the rest of the book is where he sort of builds up, well, let me do, where he builds up his theology, or his uh, rationality of the, of the scapegoat. And so we read part one. Part two is called um, The Enigma of Myth Resolved. So the horrible miracle of Apollonius of Tyana is what we talked about. Um, he talks about mythology, sacrifice, the founding murder, powers and principalities. And then part three is the victory of the cross wherein I assume it's been a long time since I've read part three. I assume that's where he lays out his how the death of Christ ends up undoing the the sort of the the tool that Satan's got for keeping keeping people in this kind of loop of rivalries getting ballooned up and then you need some sort of pressure release so that the whole thing doesn't collapse and then rivalries getting ballooned up and, um, and in so doing the devil can harvest his souls or sure. whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's Rene Girard. It's interesting stuff. You yeah. sure you, anyway, I'd be curious to hear the rest of it, but maybe I just need to go pick up the book. I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering if we've, if we've come to the end mm-hmm. of, of our discussion on it. 
Maybe we've gotten all like the bummer stuff. I'd be curious to like what the <laughs> sure. good news. Sure, I'm, I'm planning on finishing it. So. Good, I like it. Any other uh, final comments before we wrap up? Just that we have Patreon and, and yeah, sure. I'm sorry. If you I'm want to patronize us, nitpicks at the end of every episode where I, I did a Levitical nitpick, so I feel like that's got to get me some credit. Yeah. So. No, I mean like I can get my head all all like wound up about someone's um, uh, big overarching explaining. Uh, theology so i think or explaining mechanisms is always very good to be like well um but this always this doesn't always happen there are mediated discussions um those are true points that rene girard has to has to grapple with Mm -hmm. all right so this has been classical stuff you should know you can find us on patreon that's what Mm -hmm. graham just said you can find us patreon.com slash classical stuff you can find us on twitter at classical stuff c-l-s-s-c-a-l stuff you can find us on email. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You, if you send us memes, you become our favorite person immediately. So thank you for that. Um, so thank you to people who continue doing that. And it's not pronounced memes. When I first read it in uh, whichever Dawkins book it is, that's, mm-hmm. I, that's how I thought it was pronounced. Memes? This was in college. Was, but I, I contend this was before memes were a thing, uh, and mm-hmm. n- none of us knew how to pronounce it. I want to say the professor pronounced it that way, too. It was evolutionary Memes? psychology at UT. Meme? Meme. Because doesn't it literally mean like ideas or something? It's, uh, it's like a Greek word, I think. Oh, anyway, well, whatever. Okay, good talk, guys. Um, so, uh, yeah, this has been Classical Stuff. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Take Bye. care. Bye. Cheers. Bye.